Welcome to the second episode of Pharmacist Matters podcast. I'm your host, Justin Bates. On today's podcast, we have the pleasure of having Daniel Chieson, who's the president and CEO of the Canadian Association of Pharmacy Distribution Management. Daniel's a senior executive with supply chain experience and proven leadership in driving growth, profitability, and collaboration within the healthcare and food and beverage industry sectors. Prior to joining CapDM, Daniel served as Vice President of Supply Solutions at McKesson Canada. He's also held senior executive roles at Shoppers Drug Mart, Cardinal Health Canada, and MDS Inc. We have three pharmacists as panelists, starting with Chelsea Gein. Chelsea is a University of Toronto Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy graduate and is a pharmacist now at PharmaSave in Southern Ontario, who has been practicing for two years. Gary Wong, who is our pharmacy clinical manager at University Health Network in Toronto, will be talking about uh, challenges related to both operational and clinical COVID-19. And uh, Joshua Pusong, who is a second year University of Waterloo School of Pharmacy student. He has worked uh, most recently at the Markham Stouffville Hospital in pharmacy until the end of March. These are certainly surreal times. And as it relates to healthcare we really are seeing a number of challenges with respect to patient access to care, the continuity of care. And it's one of the reasons why we are going to be talking about some of our lessons learned and best practices so that we can share our stories and experiences. And hopefully, as we work together through this, we uh, come up with solutions and, and, and really come together as, a, as an industry and as a profession. I know that pharmacy professionals are proud to serve on the front lines, and they're helping patients every day manage through this pandemic. That said, there's, there's a lot of stress and anxiety, in the, and certainly having to deal with these unprecedented times is taxing every part of the healthcare system. And I know I'm personally proud of how pharmacists and, and pharmacy professionals have stepped up to really answer the call and we're, we're showcasing a lot of the value and the, the important role that we play in the healthcare system. And if there's a silver lining in all of this, it's that we are demonstrating that to the public. We're changing people's perceptions of the, the practice of pharmacy and the role we play in the broader healthcare system. But we're also, we're also engaged on a regular basis with government uh, and private payers to better work together on solutions around scope of practice, around uh, the various components of how do we better enable the frontline and protect the frontline to serve patients that will, that will last well beyond the pandemic. We are seeing some positive signals from uh, key indicators with respect to flattening the curve. I think for the first time in the last couple of days, we're starting to see that these measures of stay at home, social distancing is working. If you look at what's happening on the front line from a pharmacy perspective, innovation, creative uh, ways to safely manage patients, you're seeing stores that are putting in physical barriers, whether it's plexiglass or other mechanisms to maintain that social distancing within the store to keep their patients safe. We're also placing posters at all of the uh, front store uh, on the doors to ensure that patients do the self-assessments. And if they're sick, we have certainly encouraged patients to stay home, phone their pharmacy, utilize some of the virtual tools that are available. 
but also to uh, to look at increasing our capacity around home delivery of medications, curbside delivery, and flexing hours so that those that are more vulnerable in our population have an hour, a uh, designated hour to come into the store. Other best practices have been uh, worked on with pharmacy associations around how uh, and when to use personal protective equipment. Uh, certainly that is one of the increasing challenges in terms of being able to safely manage patients. We need to ensure that pharmacists are not only designated as essential healthcare providers for priority access to government stockpile of PPE, but we also need to make sure we're using it appropriately. And that's part of what at OPA we have done to ensure that we have some supply of PPE for Ontario pharmacists. And we are continually looking at secondary and tertiary suppliers to offer that as a, as a service. But as everybody knows, there's a global shortage. There are logistical challenges. But I think it's really important that not just for pharmacists, but for all healthcare providers, that we give them the appropriate equipment to manage their patients. As part of what we've been doing with government is that we're putting forward proposals that will enable greater scope of practice around things like emergency prescribing, certainly looking at therapeutic substitution to help uh, manage drug shortages and expediting the regulations for 12 uh, treatment and assessment of 12 common ailments. In addition to that, we are looking at an economic relief package to ensure that no patient is having an additional financial burden as a result of the 30-day supply limit that was necessary to be implemented in order to protect and maintain the supply chain, as well as some other economic uh, packages to help offset the increased operational costs as a result of managing uh, stores and, and safely managing their patients. In the early days, uh, we say early days because we're really in week five of this pandemic, but in early March, we started to work with the Canadian Association of Pharmacy Distribution Management and other stakeholders to advocate to governments in Ontario and of course across Canada to limit the supply of medications so that we would prevent drug shortages. And today we have uh, Dan on the line to chat a little bit about is that working? You know, did the 30 days uh, meet its intended uh, outcome? Oh, thank you, uh, Justin. It's a pleasure being with uh, you and the OPA and, and uh, members of the pharmacy community. And uh, kudos uh, from the top uh, for the work that uh, pharmacists do day in and day out, and particularly in times of crisis. And um, yeah, Justin, we, uh, from the uh, from a distribution perspective, were very, very supportive of the 30-day uh, uh, medication supply limit uh, that uh, most governments uh, adopted in, uh, in mid-March, uh, if I go back to uh, uh, the first uh, first weekend of the pandemic, um, you know, we uh, we essentially were wiped clean as distributors uh, in terms of large orders, uh, huge demand spikes uh, across the board on all medication. And uh, there were some early, early signals that, uh, that the industry, pharmacy and distributors, were, were sensing that uh, there was some uh, panic buying and, and stockpiling going on. 
and so there was a, a real need to uh, to manage the, the demand side. Uh, there was no issue from a supply perspective, uh, assuming normal uh, historical demand patterns. But we weren't living in normal times, and uh, there was a lot of, uh, as I mentioned, pent up demand. So the the thirty day policy uh, that uh, pharmacy advocated for and we supported strongly, uh, I believe, had the intended effect. Uh, we're now in, in week five, and uh, we started to see the benefits of that uh, in about week four. Uh, so last week and, and this week, uh, stocks are uh, slowly but surely being replenished in the uh, in the warehouses. Uh, it's too early yet uh, to take the foot off the brake pedal. Uh, it needs a couple of cycles for manufacturers to feel comfortable that their own pipeline uh, will be able to sustain the demand patterns, particularly as we resume going back to what I would call quote-unquote normal uh, activity. And at the point where uh, manufacturers are ready, then it'll take a few cycles for uh, distributors to uh, to stock up, and then it'll take uh, a few cycles as well to get the, all pharmacies across Canada uh, well stocked to resume uh, what I would call the the normal ninety day uh, script uh, patterns. So that's that's where we're at, uh, Justin. Uh, from uh, from a uh, a thirty day supply perspective, uh, we've also had to uh, put in place. Uh, manufacturer-driven allocations. Again, that's another way of managing the demand aside. But as I previously mentioned, other than <clears throat> drugs that are <clears throat> excuse me, uh, impacted by the COVID treatment, um, other drugs should be resuming their normal, normal demand patterns. And we're starting to see some early signs that manufacturers are starting to remove some of these allocations. Again, it will take some cycles before we can get back to what I would call normal activity. But there's some encouraging signs uh, on, uh, on that front. Have you been uh, engaged with media and talking about some of these things? And uh, I think sort of a follow-up to that would be, you know, have we seen any drug shortages from directly related to COVID-19? Yeah, so there's been uh, obviously some media coverage around the 30-day, uh, and uh, CAPDM has been, uh, you know, uh, quite uh, quite clear in our support for the 30-day policy and uh, indicating as well, uh, both through media and through uh, open letters to industry stakeholders and some direct letters to uh, to government officials as well, that the time is is not uh, now to to release the 30-day uh, limits. Uh, we will get there, uh, and there's a, an economic interest for everybody to get there uh, as quickly as possible. But <clears throat> I think you mentioned. The about uh, you know doing the right things and, and being responsible, uh, I think despite the fact that uh, it's not economically uh, beneficial uh, to uh, to put those uh, those limits in place, uh, it, it is the right thing to do to ensure that uh, uh, patients will get their medication uh, when they require their medication. And we're still advocating that uh, they shouldn't be uh, ordering more than what they uh, what they really need. The supply chain will be there for them. Now, with respect to the question of, are we seeing some drug shortages? Um, no, if we go back to uh, mid-March mid when the pandemic was declared on a global basis, uh, no, we did see some shortages that were driven by demand spikes. And we've talked about this already. As we 
project forward, uh, what we anticipate is that there will continue to be some shortages on medication that is used for treating COVID-19 uh, patients. And uh, whether uh, whether it's uh, medication that's used in ICUs, uh, such as sedatives, neuromuscular blockers, analgesics, um, th- those, you know, we're already st- starting to see uh, some of the, uh, some of the, um, shortages uh, pop up and uh, with the healthcare system looking at ways of mitigating those shortages by uh, you know, Health Canada is being very, very proactive in allowing exceptional importation authorization for drugs that could actually be substituted for those that are in short supply. <clears throat> and uh, the other piece that uh, we're also seeing is a crossover of products that um, are typically in the um, in the community pharmacy setting, but are being used increasingly uh, in a acute care setting, and specifically the uh, the antivirals, uh, hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine uh, being an example of those, and the meter dose inhalers, uh, where we've seen a change in protocol uh, recently by hospitals away from nebulizers towards using the uh, meter dose inhalers that you would see typically in in a retail setting. So those are car- causing some. Uh, some imbalances between uh, supply, uh, which is there for normal uh, demand patterns, but we are seeing no spikes, uh, which is creating shortages that I think will persist uh, in certain regions of, of the country, uh, particularly where they're more advanced in terms of their COVID uh, cases. One of the things we've been advocating to the Ontario government for is for the government to step in and pick up the additional uh, co-payments on the second and, and third dispense, given uh, a typical 90-day uh, cycle going to, to the 30 days. Uh, we are encouraged by those uh, discussions, but we continue to uh, uh, urge the government to move in on that because we don't want to put any patient uh, in any financial uh, stress during this time. Um, in addition to that, um, when I think about the, the 30 days and, and all potentially syncing up to that uh, period of time, how do we, in your mind, uh, how do you envision rolling this back out to 90 days? Uh, I, I would assume that there may be some challenges if everybody's synced up and suddenly turn back to a 90-day cycle. So are are there discussions with government, uh, Dan, about uh, how we would transition and maybe stage this uh, over a period of time? Yeah, so the the conversations are uh, are ongoing. Obviously, there is a consumer pressure and political pressure to uh, get back to 90 days uh, as quickly as possible. Our, our belief, given our visibility into the supply chain, uh, both at the manufacturer level and with distributors, is that um, this will likely be done in a gradual uh, fashion where certain categories or therapy or, or a course of treatments uh, will be able to uh, you know, come online to a normal demand uh, pattern or normal supply pattern, I should say, uh, in in a gradual fashion. Uh, And I think we're still weeks away because, as I mentioned, we're starting to get some early signals from manufacturers that uh, their inventory position uh, is uh, is uh, moving in the right direction. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that the inventory positions at pharmacy or at the wholesale level uh, are still where they need to be to resume uh, 
normal uh, normal supply, but we will get there gradually. And, and as I mentioned, uh, no, it's not going to happen overnight, and it's not going to happen uh, with the flip of one switch where everybody goes back to uh, to the ninety day supply. That in itself, I believe, creates some challenges. Uh, and pharmacists are probably better positioned to to talk about this in terms of how to execute, uh, you know, certain categories of products going back to ninety days while others remain on the thirty day. And uh, so this is something that I'm less uh, conversant about, but uh, we believe that at least from a supply chain perspective, uh, that uh, you know, we're probably uh, you know, uh, weeks away from being able to open up uh, the supply chain uh, to the 90 days on a gradual basis. Thanks, Dan. I think that gives Canadians a lot of confidence in the planning that's gone into this, the rationale for rationing the supply to 30-day limit, uh, and in fact that it's working. Uh, I think that that reassures everyone. Um, when we look at, uh, I want to transition over to our panelists um, at this point, uh, and and you know one of the things that we're hearing about, um, and it makes a lot of sense given the the closures of clinics, uh, doctors moving to uh, more of a virtual care model. In fact, many doctors are giving their time in other parts of the healthcare system, such as palliative care. What that has done is it's created uh, an influx of patients coming to the pharmacies looking for community-based health services. And that's both a, an opportunity and it presents a challenge given the challenge of, of the risk of exposure of COVID-19 between patients and uh, pharmacy professionals. Um, but it also gives us an opportunity to work with patients and demonstrate the uh, access that we, you know, that we enjoy in terms of having over 4,600 pharmacies across the province. Chelsea Gein, you're a, a University of Toronto Leslie Dan faculty pharmacy graduate. Uh, you're a practicing pharmacist now with a, a PharmaSave uh, store in uh, southwestern Ontario. You've been practicing for over two years. Um, certainly, you know, these are uh, surreal times as it relates to uh, the conditions that we're all operating in. Uh, I know you wrote a, a very passionate uh, We'll call it a blog on uh, on Facebook uh, that caught a lot of attention uh, for its uh, genuine nature of uh, concerns that you expressed and and really I think you did an excellent job in capturing what it's like on the front line. Wanted to uh, you know get you to comment a little bit on on what you're experiencing, what you're seeing, what are those challenges, and how do you feel as a pharmacist today? Um, if you could share those experiences, that would be great. Sure. Thanks, Justin. Uh, well, I know there are a lot of challenges that we're all going through. I think one of the biggest challenges is how much pressure is being put on the pharmacy staff. So, I mean, our staff are warriors and they're doing an amazing job, but they're also pretty exhausted. And I'm, I'm sure we all sort of feel this way, um, but everyone is just doing their best and we will make make it through this. Uh, I think the first two weeks were, were a real adjustment with the explosion of requests for prescriptions. It really was nonstop. Uh, pharmacists were, you know, staying extra hours to clear all the baskets, check blister packs, all that sort of thing that couldn't be done during the day. Um, and another challenge that you'd already kind of touched upon is trying to fill the gaps in the health system right now. So especially in primary care, a lot of doctors are still providing virtual care for their patients, but they are a lot harder to contact. So people are looking to pharmacies for medical advice even more than before. 
Uh, and obviously exposure is a concern without any, any PPE and going home to our families and having concerns for, for their safety as well. Um, and we are actually getting a high number of requests for injections from patients and doctors, not just for vaccines, but actually for medications as well. So unfortunately, without appropriate PPE, we're not able to, to do that for patients. But, um, but it's something that, you know, is, is interesting that it has kind of spiked in that way. Uh, and then you mentioned as well, um, operational differences. So deliveries uh, have in increased. We've had to come up with a delivery protocol for social distancing, including screening before sending things to people or knowing how we're supposed to, you know, deliver their medication, ensure the patient receives it. Um, and also figuring out how to adjust store hours and limit the number of people in the store at a time, reallocating staff and screening at the door. Um, and, you know, we have had challenges that way too. Unfortunately, some people have been, you know, untruthful about their symptoms. So that also just adds more stress to the staff. Um, but most patients are really great with it. So um, I think the important thing too is we're acting even more as a liaison between patient and doctor. So we'll even get blood work requisition forms from doctors that the patients come in to pick up. So we are really, you know, that true front line uh, for all of the patients. So overall, not only an influx added to the, the regular workflow, but in other areas as well. So it's just been challenging balancing it all, as I'm sure many of you are finding. That's a great perspective. Um, and I think it, it really gives uh, our audience um, a frontline view of what actually is happening and, and the challenges um, that you're faced with on a, a daily basis. Um, you mentioned about the personal protective equipment, and that's obviously something that has received a lot of media attention. Uh, government is challenged in, in getting replenishing supplies. We know that um, critical PP like the N95 masks are in short supply for long-term care homes, nurses, physicians, and, and pharmacy. Uh, can you talk about, like, do you have PP um, and what kind of PP are you looking for? Um, and would that give you the sense of security that uh, you, you require? Yeah, so um, what we have done, we do have some, uh, I guess, plexiglass kind of screens that we've tried to hang from the ceiling uh, in the dispensary areas and up at the front cache. We do have that protection. Um, we have ordered through the, we're lucky we had that partnership uh, that OPA um, developed with Ronco. So we have ordered supplies from there. We did get uh, some surgical masks in just this week. So that's great. Um, I actually had a kind of an inspiring comment there on the mask last week. I was talking to someone, it was a community member. They found out we didn't have any masks as uh, health workers on the front line. And they were so concerned. They asked if we were taking donations. And a couple of days later, they brought in a new box of 50 disposable surgical masks. Uh, so that really made the staff smile. So that was kind of a neat story. So we started having masks as of last week. But and then, like I said, the OPA that ordered the, the masks came in. We're still, I think, I think we also ordered the gowns. Um, and so, you know, it's slowly kind of coming to, to, like you said, make us feel a bit more protected and secure in our jobs going to work every day. That's great. And I'm glad uh, you were able to receive uh, the first order from, from Ronco. Um, the, when, if I asked you a question about uh, what you need, what's the support, um, whether that's scope or, or anything really, that if you could talk to government directly, um, what would you say? What would be your, your ask um, as a uh, frontline healthcare provider? Uh, that's a good question. I think, I think the main thing would just be 
Um, one, the recognition that we are on the front line. We're frontline professionals. We're doing our best and we're here to care for patients. Um, you know, and in that way, we, you know, should be um, prioritized just like all the other health professionals out there. I know, like you said, there is a short supply um, and we slowly are getting some protective equipment. So that's a good sign. Um, but I think just that that underlying support and recognition that we are out here, you know, kind of taking the place of many, uh, many professionals that, you know, are working from home or people that, you know, aren't available as much for patients and even just looking for comfort or what to do in certain situations, they're calling their pharmacy. So it's, it's kind of both sides. It's great that we can be there for our patients, but I think it's also important that the government can recognize everything that we are doing. Um, and I think even you know, it's really important during this pandemic to kind of reflect on what we're accomplishing every day in our pharmacies and as professionals, realizing, you know, how capable we are, how many skills we do have, and how we've all risen to this unforeseen challenge. Um, and just to remember all of this when the situation's over so we can kind of go forward with a renewed sense of our value as a profession. And I think that's spot on. Uh, I know I speak for many people in saying uh, we appreciate what you're doing. Uh, you have our full gratitude. And uh, certainly, I know in my conversations with government, which are happening very uh, frequently, that uh, government also recognizes the, the challenges. And uh, there's obviously a lot of different moving pieces within the, the healthcare system. But I do believe that um, both from a public perception perspective, as well as government, that we are showcasing the the value and the accessibility that we offer for patients and that that will serve us well uh, beyond the the pandemic. At this stage, I'd like to bring in Gary Wong, who's the uh, pharmacy clinical manager at the University Health Network in Toronto. Gary, you you uh, practice in a hospital setting, and we just heard from Chelsea with respect to the community-based uh, care model and uh, some of the, the challenges and what's happening. Really would like to hear from you uh, from the hospital perspective. Uh, what, what have you experienced? What are the challenges operationally and clinically? So uh, thank you very much for this opportunity. I was, I was going to say, I, I think um, the hospital has had a, a quiet voice in this um, and that's because normally we're a, a black box and people aren't familiar with, with what is exactly going on. But I'd have to say um, COVID has really changed the hospital practice. Um, we um, have been mandated to increase our ICU beds from 98 to 196. So doubling of our ICU beds. Our, our general medicine population usually runs about 200, 225 beds, and we've been asked to move up to 800 beds. The hospital always runs 95% full historically. So, um, you know, obviously um, having this um, hundredfold uh, um, improvement in capability is impossible without dramatic changes. And so there have been dramatic changes. Um, what we are seeing is um, in order to empty the hospital, um, we are um, not doing elective surgery. We're not doing transplants. Um, we are really um, limiting um, the amount of activity in the hospital. And that is allowing us to move from our 95% um, fullness to, down to about 65% full in terms of, um, you know, patient load. Um, we've stopped research. We stopped teaching we stopped um, clinic work. 
And all of those are very important because we have, um, in order to upstaff um, these other areas, uh, we need to obviously pull in staff. And so um, getting uh, the small amount of staff that we get from research, um, stopping our teaching activities and stopping our ambulatory activities uh, will allow us a small pool of resources um, to bring into these areas. Um, there's no doubt that we've also activated um, our part-time people and other people to actually um, that have historically worked for us um, as other resources. So we've cut down on certain things um, to allow for the expansion. And um, I could tell you that the expansion is, in the ICU expansion, it is a lot of work. Um, you know, we obviously have a couple extra beds that we can open up in ICU units that were uh, maybe uh, financially not opened. Um, so, you know, there's maybe two or three beds that get opened up in an ICU. But we've had to open up uh, our post-operating um, room um, recovery areas. So many of these uh, PACU areas that are used for operational recovery of patients um, are now turning into ICUs. Um, our cardiac cath lab um, is slotted to turn into an ICU um, as required. And when we do these things, I just want you to realize um, we need to change floor stocks. We're moving Pixis machines, which are dispensing machines into these areas to be able to operationally support these areas. So there's a lot of things um, that are moving to order in order to get these ICUs and other floors um, actually able to accommodate the COVID patients. Some of the other things um, that people don't realize is um, when we get this um, jump in patients and we're already feeling a, a jump in patients in our ICU, um, things like Alaris pumps, the smart pumps are gonna be limited. And so we've actually had to go through our list of medications and decide, okay, these must be administered by an Alaris pump and these other uh, medications will have to be done by gravity. Um, historically, we used uh, smart pumps for 90% um, of our administration and we need to change that. There's no doubt also um, just with the COVID um, situation, um, and trying to maintain social distancing, uh, we've changed a lot of the way we do our work in the hospital. Uh, one good example is um, trying to conserve PPE for nursing. Um, we're trying to minimize medication administration times. So instead of having classic administration times for patients, um, patients with COVID, we're trying to uh, collapse the amount of times that we're actually entering the room and uh, minimize um, in our use of exposure and our use of PPE um, in order to um, you know, conserve what we have. Most of our work is now done virtually. So the clinic patients that we do see is done on a virtual clinic visit. Even our rounds that we have with our medical team, um, there's no doubt in the ICU and in the COVID floors, we're doing um, still face-to-face -face rounds, um, but in many of the areas, we're actually doing virtual rounds um, using the different, um, um, you know, different platforms that are available um, for us to um, do this. Um, obviously, Skype and Zoom and, and uh, micro office uh, platforms are allowing us to do virtual meetings. Um, I'd have to say, even when we talk about BPMHing um, COVID patients, we've taken uh, many important steps to minimize exposure, 
Uh, one of the important things we decided is um, you can always wait. Uh, a person comes into ER with respiratory symptoms, um, do, do your secondary sources first, you know, pass BPMHs, talking to the retail pharmacy, using Connecting Ontario, and wait to see if their COVID status, uh, we'll know in 24 hours what their COVID status is. And so uh, wait the 24 hours. Um, when you find that they are COVID-free, then you, you can approach them, um, again, using the proper IPAC philosophies. So even BPMHing, we've kind of changed. And there's no doubt that even, um, you know, the way we um, uh, use the rooms and um, the way we have COVID areas and COVID-free areas, we try to maintain that philosophy as much as possible. And we're even using some working from home um, early in this COVID scenario with the travel restrictions. We had many staff that were um, confined um, to being at home with the, the self-quarantining. And so we developed uh, a working from home philosophy, which allowed um, our pharmacists to be productive even in isolation. Um, so you can see that there's been a lot going on in the hospital world and just kind of going back up to uh, Dan's comment and uh, looking at therapeutics for COVID patients, I was going to say that there's no doubt that um, there's a high demand for paralysis and sedation. And, you know, that's actually made um, additional work for us, which is fine, um, in the sense that we had to develop conservational philosophies and more appropriate ways to manage patients on paralysis and sedation. But so those are some of the big things um, that I wanted to to mention. And, you know, well, anyways, um, I'll, I'll stop at that time. Yeah. you. That's great, Gary. Thanks for that overview. And I think it's important for our listeners to understand uh, the challenges within the, the hospital setting. You mentioned virtual care, and, and it's something that um, I, I wonder, as, as a patient myself, um, you know, will this, will this be transformative? You know, what we're going through from, from a societal perspective, you know, you mentioned work from home, you mentioned, uh, you know, different uh, areas that are being accommodated operationally because of social distancing. I think we we all are wondering whether that will have uh, any staying power um, and maybe more adoption and acceptance of some of the virtual care options because as we look at trying to create capacity in a healthcare system, we're going to have to, um, for a sustainable healthcare system, or at least to achieve that, we're going to have to look at how do we enable more community-based care? How do we make sure it's the right person in the hospital bed? getting the bed blockers out, um, you know, the right person in the doctor's chair. And all of these are going to be important mechanisms that uh, will be at our disposal to better serve patients. And, and maybe that's the silver lining. Maybe we'll have um, an environment of greater adoption and implementation of these uh, care options. Um, I wanted to bring in uh, Josh uh, Pusong, who is a second year University of Waterloo School of Pharmacy student. He was working at the Markham Stouffville Hospital in pharmacy until the end of March. Um, Josh, you've been able to uh, hear this conversation from different perspectives. Uh, being in your second year uh, and, and watching all of this unfold, um, maybe you can share some of your thoughts. Thank you, Justin, <clears throat> uh, for having me here. Um, 
I, I know Gary addressed a lot of the um, points from the perspective of hospital pharmacy. So I'll be trying to provide my input mainly from the student perspective. So as a second year pharmacy student, you know, coming to co-op, so co-op is a uh, work term practical opportunity for us to apply our knowledge throughout school as we become practicing pharmacists later on. And so um, to, to ex have the COVID-19 pandemic situation occur during our very first co-op work term is definitely something that we definitely didn't expect. So for me, I would say that when I, I noticed this first occurred, at, I, I, at first I actually saw it as a potential opportunity, like a great learning opportunity, because it's not every day that as a student you get to encounter this type of situation. But as the situation became more serious and it progressed, I, I would be honest that um, there were some times where there would be feelings of, of stress and anxiety. So as um, Justin brought up, I had the opportunity to work as a, as a co-op student at Markham Stovall Hospital, where I'd be aiding in the, uh, the med rec process. So that's like addressing any um, medication discrepancies with uh, medications ordered uh, for patients that were admitted to hospital compared to what they were taking prior to admission. And a big role of my uh, position was to perform the BP matches um, and, um, so to, to basically summarize my role, I essentially um, would spend a good portion of my time talking to patients um, about what medications they're taking um, <clears throat> coming to the hospital. And so my position would include various units of the hospital, um, mainly in the emergency. And so when the COVID-19 pandemic situation started to arise, um, it made me realize um, what if there was a situation where maybe a patient I might be talking to you might potentially be, you know, suspected of maybe having COVID-19 or whatnot. Now I have my supervisor um, reassure me that, you know, the hospital has their policies and whatnot to ensure um, which patients would be um, appropriately triaged com coming in. Um, now, before the global pandemic was announced, um, there's actually a short story I I'd like to share where, um, Although um, there were patients coming in into the hospital and they'd be triaged appropriately, there would be cases where um, after an assessment with a physician in the emergency that patients might be, um, might be swabbed later on for COVID-19. So I actually had one or a couple instances where there'd be some patients I'd be talking to and, you know, I would look at their chart, you know, I can notice they have some respiratory symptoms and whatnot, but nothing to mention of a, a potential COVID-19 case. And, you know, I talked to them and everything would, would go by smoothly. And then um, let's say if I had some questions for them later on, I'd come back and talk to them. Um, there's this one instance where one of the nurses actually warned me, oh, you shouldn't be talking to that patient because they're being swapped for COVID-19. And, and this was kind of stressful for me because I actually spoke to that same patient about a half an hour ago. And so I figured, oh, well, that I just spoke to them. So, you know, that made me realize that I was in contact with them. And then there is um, other things that came to mind, um, not just through co-op, but because I am exposing myself in the hospital. So right now I'm currently, um, you know, living at home with my family. And it was an Another stressing factor as a student that I had to think about because um, I'd not only be putting myself at risk at the hospital, but I'd be potentially bringing home that risk, you know, back to my home and family. And so kind of like Gary mentioned about how um, some hospitals have stopped with the teaching. So I know that um, most of the rotation students from uh, U of T and Waterloo have been put on pause. As far as I'm concerned right now, um, co-op students at Waterloo are, um, are 
are still continuing to work, although they are given the option to opt out if they like, um, depending on their preference. Now, in my situation, my hospital made the decision that visitors and students would not be allowed in the hospital, which is why my co-op term um, ended early on, early on in that, in that case. So, um, and for, for various safety reasons. Um, and yeah, so like for me, it was just, it was just a very interesting situation that unfolded because never would have a, I ever imagined that as an early second year student would I ever encounter like a pandemic situation like this. Now, that being said, I will say that for the, my classmates who are still in co-op, they're still practicing right now. I'll say that I'm you know, very proud of them for putting their life on the front line as with other pharmacy professionals. Um, as like, um, I've heard various comments that, you know, employers would be commenting how a lot of my, my colleagues and classmates, um, which are students are still, you know, contributing to the cause and ensuring that patients, you know, still get the care they need during this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks for your perspective, uh, Josh. Um, I have one open question for our panelists today, and, and that relates to things we're hearing on a daily basis around the need to increase capacity for testing of COVID-19. Um, certainly, you know, knowing that there's a shortage of PPE uh, is, is one of the barriers to testing in the community. And as you know, the province has set up these assessment testing centers um, and, and more and more of these rapid point of care uh, testing uh, diagnostic tests are available. Spartan just got uh, approval, Spartan Bioscience from, from Ottawa on uh, a rapid test. And uh, as, we, as we liaise with government and we're talking to pharmacists, um, you know, we're, we're trying to ascertain the appetite essentially for doing this in pharmacies. And, and to do that, you know, we would have to have uh, the regulatory environment um, changed in order to permit this. But uh, maybe I'll start with you, Chelsea. Uh, how do you feel about that? I mean, uh, if there was the opportunity to do that and contribute uh, more testing um, so that we could better understand the problem and if we're flattening the curve um, and, and potentially in the future, this would be an area for um, more involvement in uh, point of care testing for for the profession, but but how would you feel about that? Um, I mean, I guess it would depend on like if it's for right now during the pandemic, the workflow is already so um, sort of maximized out that if if the testing was something they wanted us to be doing in the pharmacies, whether we'd be getting additional staff or a nurse or someone to come in to help do all that, then you know it might be a, a good idea. I think it's just kind of trying to manage all the resources we have right now with what's going on and then um, being able to actually add something else on top of it. I mean, I think it would be good, like you said, you can just kind of get an idea about what's happening and, and having people in the community being able to come and get tested. But um, I think at the moment, it's good we do have those testing centers that are set up. Um, I mean, I think it would provide a bit more access um, to the general public because right now I think the testing centers, when I've talked to public health, are just for the people that they refer. So this way it would be a little bit more um, open and available and easy access for kind of everyone. Uh, but I think it would be kind of figuring out those logistics on how that would all work. Yeah, and as you probably saw, the U.S. has enabled all pharmacies to participate, and I believe it's an opt-in model. So depending on your workflow and operating environment, uh, it may or may not be conducive, um, and whether or not it's something that each store would want to participate in. 
but uh, I think you know it's an important step to um, show what pharmacies can do and uh, and contribute a solution. Understanding that everything you just said around the support and the apparatus around it is is critical, um, but certainly an area that, that I think is worth exploring. Um, Gary, from from a hospital's perspective, do you see any role for testing, um, or, or do you think that's more of a community based uh, service? Um, so, um, I, I think it's a, a great idea. Um, so, you have to remember that we have uh, five retail stores in our hospital setting, and we also have many um, clinics and ambulatory pharmacists, and uh, getting the opportunity to th for them to be involved in this, um, I think, is a great idea. However, I just want you to realize operationalizing this becomes a little bit harder. Um, you know, this um, test um, as, as you've alluded to, I, I just want you to realize that if you're bringing in potentially COVID positive patients, um, how you manage this um, in each clinic and in, in each uh, pharmacy is going to be challenging. Uh, we're not used to these infection control um, concerns. And so I think that the looking into that process uh, becomes important. Um, there's no doubt that in the hospital setting right now, our testing um, availability is, is good. But uh, still, um, patients that are only symptomatic are being tested. And you're right, uh, understanding, um, doing surveillance testing and understanding the true prevalence of this disease uh, would be very beneficial. Uh, I just want you to realize, um, you know, um, testing patients uh, and having the IPAC concerns would have to be addressed. All great Thank points and, and well um, well taken. Uh, Josh, do you have any other uh, thoughts on point-of-care testing as it relates to COVID-19? All right. So um, I think my comments would be similar to what the following speakers would have mentioned. So um, as we know, the, the, the pharmacy right now is undergoing through like a, a new challenge throughout this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, at least from my knowledge from the hospital perspective at Markham Civil Hospital, um, we have a dedicated testing center now that's also remotely separated from the hospital. So that ensures that patients that want to get tested don't um, put others at risk in the hospital by entering the hospital in the first place. Um, uh, from a community testing, although it is a possibility to consider, um, as it was mentioned earlier also, um, there is a potential risk that, you know, you would be bringing potential um, COVID-19 um, positive patients come um, into the community pharmacy, let's say, for instance, if that were a thing. And, you know, the, I could potentially put either a staff at risk or may, as well as other patients that would be coming in. I mean, that's not to say that um, point of care testing could be done for for potentially, um, you know, other conditions that, <coughs> as, as I was brought up before in previous talks. Um, but definitely during the COVID pandemic 19, it's, it is a very unique situation. And so, um, there are some barriers that we have to face, but maybe that's something we could still potentially consider later on, depending on how the situation unfolds. I want to thank our guests today for joining the Pharmacist Matters podcast. Be sure to watch my biweekly video that will be distributed on all social media platforms. It's a video that talks about what the Ontario Pharmacists Association is doing for our members and how we are advocating on your behalf. Our next episode will be in May. Uh, Pharmacist Matters, and uh, we are now on multiple platforms. We can be found on Apple, Google Music, and Spotify. Stay safe, everyone. Be sure to uh, tune in next month in May for episode three uh, of our Pharmacist Matters podcast. I want everyone to stay safe 
stay um, safe and happy. And uh, we look forward to uh, chatting in the future. Thank you.